Hello. And a spooky welcome to Liars Leap, where writers write, actors read, audience trembles in fear, and everybody wins. If you have ever traipsed door to door with a sheet over your head, your proud and fearful parents watching from a safe distance as you gather chocolate and other treats. If you have ever dared your friends into playing more and more infantile tricks on the houses of the town's misfits. If you have ever dug up the freshly interred corpse of... Actually, that one's probably just me. <laughs> Tonight we have six stories written by six authors and read by six actors, all to scare and delight. It was going to be seven, but one of the stories was shredded by its framing context. <laughs> A good thing too, these six are quite horrifying enough. We'll have three in the first half, then an interval to help you get over the inevitable sugar rush, or perhaps the alcoholic slump, or even the rigor mortis. Before we head towards the evil hour with the infamous Lies League book quiz. And three final tales of mischief. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the audience of the phoenix that it wasn't his ringtone. Don't be like the devil. He's a dick. <laughs> Please, turn your phones off or to silent, and we will begin. Our first terrifying tale is Trixie's Treat by Diane Payne, and we read by Sophie Morris Shepard. Diane writes serious journalism and curious fiction. She lives in Manchester and has worked in the media for far too long. Her fiction has appeared in several US and UK magazines, including Triangulation, Creeping Horror, and Dead Good. She loves a good punning pseudonym. Sophie played Rebecca Locke in a series called The Paradox, a project which she helped devise as a short film in 2011. She's involved in several new writing initiatives in London, her professional credits span the whole spectrum of theatre, TV, commercials, film, voiceover, rehearsed readings, and most recently, roleplay. Sophie! Trixie's Treat by Diane Payne. Tricks, I repeat, eyeing the potion I've just mixed up from the nameless dregs of our drinks cabinet. Do you really think this is a good idea? She rolls her eyes and waves her green nails. Whatever. She's wearing yellow cat contact lenses, and her eye makeup is more panda than Wanda, her sexy witch character. But the effect's actually quite creepy like she's possessed. She never does anything by halves, my housemate. Other accessories include a dozen broomstick, a gnarled ebony wand, 
and a velvet corset so tight she's in constant danger of disappearing behind her own boobs. Jeez, Dr. Buzzkill, says Trixie. Just down it, will you? I can't actually kill us. No, I say doubtfully. I mean, probably not. My costume is a model of restraint compared to hers. I'm a mad scientist in an acid-stained lab coat with a tight white dress underneath, in case I feel any chemistry. Ho, ho, I know I'll be dealing with that level of humour all night. It took me an hour to backcomb my hair into an Einstein meets Frankenstein puffball, but it's still too early to go to Pete's party without looking like we've got nothing better to do. So now, we're just sitting in the kitchen, scoffing Haribo out of the pumpkins we carved earlier, and doing shots. <coughs> when we ran out of vodka, we moved on to miniatures of Jack Daniels, and now we're mind-sweeping the murky quarter bottles left behind after our last party. Tricks eyes my hesitation. Have I got to do everything? She grabs her shot and necks it, and then succumbs to a prolonged bout of coughing. A touch too much chili tequila, perhaps. <coughs> what, what's it called? She croaks. I consult my notebook, scribbled with impressive-looking equations I made up while we were on the vodka. Coffin liquor, I say, pretty pleased with myself. <coughs> Ugh. She rinses with Red Bull and then grabs my shop and downs that too. In for a penny! I peer over my plain glass boffin type specs. Did you know there really is such a thing? It's the ooze and fluids that collect in the bottom of a sealed coffin as the body liquefies. Lead line ones are the worst, apparently. They don't leak. Open them after a few hundred years and you've got corpse soup. Now, she really looks a bit queasy. Beth, honestly, where did you get this horrible stuff? Back of the booze cupboard, I told you. Oh, the internet. Where else? Well, some poor guy's in for the small talk of his life tonight, she shudders. I deploy my evil laugh. Oh, <laughs> no need to talk. I'll just sip him a dose of love potion, number seven. I pull a plastic test tube of Ribena out of my breast pocket and waggle it. <laughs> Cute. Well, something's got to work, I suppose. We could both do with some action for a change. This <coughs> is true. It's been enough months that I've stopped counting in months. And as for Trix, well, she's only got eyes for party peak too, can't even see straight most of the time. We sit in brief, deep silence, pondering our... Desperation isn't quite the word. Eagerness? Enthusiasm, shall we say, to pull tonight. Trix is looking pretty smoking, if the likes of her hashtag hot Halloween selfie are anything to go by. And as for me, 
well. The lab coat has a lot of pockets, so at least if I get bored, I can grab my phone and order an Uber. Well, costume pockets are important. The last time I left my coat on the bed at Party Pete's, it ended up pounded flat by the couple shagging on it when I went to leave. God knows what happened to my old phone, but I never want to see the photos. Honestly, I'll be just pleased if no one cries or throws up on me this time. <coughs> Halloween parties, in my experience, have all the drunkenness and promiscuity of masked balls, without the mystery or the sophistication. Not that I've ever been to a masked ball. The doorbell rings, shattering the glum, sex-starved silence. Tricks switch the electronic chime to the classic Nokia ringtone as an ironic gift for my birthday and then forgot how to change it back. That was in January. I think I'll ask for a new doorbell next year. Trix sits bolt upright. Who's that? Trick or treaters, idiot. We've got the glow-in-the-dark skeleton in the window. Obviously we're fair game. And half of Hamblin's seasonal aisle decorating the steps down to our already dilapidated basement flat. I seize a pumpkin which still has a few jelly eyeballs rolling around the bottom. Trix grabs her broom and adjusts her costume. Scary enough. If anyone has a morbid terror of cleavage, definitely. She grins. I'll fuck off. <laughs> Party Pete definitely doesn't. Hence the corset. Nice wand, I say, to soften the blow. Hermione Granger's. She makes a face. Nah, they were sold out. Four pounds fifty on eBay. Naturally. I thought the bidding would go higher, but no one else seemed to want it. She draws a quick pentacle in the air. Maybe it's cursed. Ooh. <laughs> she examines it briefly and then shovels it in her piled up curls, like one of those geisha style hair sticks. For four pounds fifty, I say. You wish. <laughs> well, she says, snatching a tub of fizzy ghosts as a doorbell doodles again. <coughs> Let's not keep our visitors waiting. It's a varied cross-section of local child life that greets us. The effort, pile, the effort applied to the costumes ranges from full-on national theatre wardrobe via off-the-peg supermarket pirate vampire wizard to a fitted cot sheet turned inside out to hide the 101 Dalmatian print. I feel sorry for the little ghost who doesn't even have any eye holes, presumably because the sheep has to go back on her bed tonight. The kids, although seriously, that kitchen roll mummy is at least six foot tall, shuffle excitedly as Wanda slams open the door with a flourish of her vessel. Trick or treat, they all scream, except the toddler ghost who jumps on the spot yelling, tree, tree, until the undersized werewolf, we're puppy, restrains her. 
sweets, slurs, tricks. I suppose we should have eaten more than sugar and e-numbers before moving from vodka to mystery cocktails. Oh well, too late now. I am Wanda the Witch Wench, and I want you to know who's been naughty and who's been nice. There's a confused silence. Then a blood-spattered clown says quietly, That's Christmas. <laughs> Trixie, <coughs> sorry, Wanda squints. All right. <clears throat> who's been evil? And who's been wicked? They all shoot their arms up eagerly except too cool for school money. Who crosses his and pulls out a vape stick? <laughs> I assume his dickish air of indifference is due to being there under duress, probably to guard a younger sibling from poison apples and slavering paedophiles. I have an amusing vision of his paper costume catching fire until I realize it's not a real cigarette. Fantastic, cries Wanda. Treats for everybody. Keep up the bad behaviour. She starts haphazardly distributing handfuls of candy <coughs> into the waiting buckets and then glances at the mummy lounging halfway up the steps. How about you, Sunny? She calls, raising her arm against the streetlight glare and nearly knocking me sideways with her suddenly uplifted bosom. Trick or treat? The mummy leans forward with sudden interest, a glint of braces in his grin. What is he? An overgrown 14-year-old beanpole? Show us your magic tits, Wanda, he says. That'd be a treat. Trixie freezes. The older ones giggle. Into the sudden stillness, <coughs> the little ghost asks, What's magic tits? <laughs> I wonder about telling the boys' parents, but that's the problem with Halloween. Everyone's got a mask on, and you don't know who's who. The mummy is just a pair of glaring brown eyes and narrow bitten lips. And he knows we'd have to pull off his bandages to identify him, smug little git. Okay, sweetheart, says Trix, the drunken hilarity dropping off her like a sheet. There's children present, so I'm not going to swear, but that's out of order. The kids shuffle uneasily, aware that some boundary has been crossed, but unsure what or how. Trick slides the wand from her witch's bun with the silent precision of a samurai unsheathing his sword and directs it to the sulking mummy. Fancy apologising? The children hold their breath. This level of drama CBBC cannot provide. 
mine, thus hoping no one reports him for intimidating a minor or something. The horny mummy is as silent as a sarcophagus. All right, says Trixie cheerfully. Trick it is. Had to give you a chance, though. She lifts her wand fractionally, a conductor beginning the concerto. Then she intones. By the power invested in me, by the deities of darkness, and the elder gods of the place that must not be named, nice save, for the crime of insulting a witch and violating the spirit of Halloween itself, I'll call down a curse. For a second, I actually think I hear thunder, until I realise it's the bin lorry down the road. Still, Trix is impressive as Wanda. Backlit by our security light, she presents the classic witch's silhouette and far from thence behind, wreathes her in a cloak of smoky steam. She raises her wand high and aims it at the, money, at the mummy. Treat thou a witch with reverent grace, she chants, lest this knight's mask becomes a face. The moment is magnificent and terrifying. Unfortunately, Right then, a gobstopper sails out of the darkness, knocking Trix's wand from her fingers. It flies upwards, spinning like a majorette's baton, and then lands on the concrete path with a fearsome crack, and it explodes, covering everyone, including the gobstopper-throwing mummy, in a shower of sparks. Then the security light blows. I step forward blindly. All right, everybody, show's over. Off you go, carefully up the steps. Have a happy Halloween, except you. You know who you are. Disappointed, but pleasurably awed, the kids leave. The mummy, I am satisfied to see, can't get away quick enough. Trix tries to retrieve her wand, but in the dark, it's nowhere to be found. Anyway, I'm pretty sure it's matchsticks by now. She didn't tell me it was an electronic one, but I'm glad it's gone, if I'm honest. If it had exploded at Pete's party, it might actually have hurt someone. We go back inside, and after a bit of rummaging, I find a forgotten bottle of Merlot in the cupboard under the sink. And that keeps us going until it's time to head for peace. There's not much more to say, except the curse seemed to work. It was only an overnight thing, but from reports in the local paper and my experience at peace, it affected everyone the sparks hit. So, the little ghost spent the night sliding through the bars of her cot, then the wall into her brother's room, where a diminutive well 
was tearing up the sheepskin rug and howling at the moon. The pirate raided his mum's rum bottle and then the jewellery box. And the less said about the killer clown, the better. As for our silver tongue's money, he spent the night in A&E with his long-suffering parents, shrieking for someone to take off the bandages. They couldn't, of course, not without peeling bits off him too. But the next morning, after a night of sedation, they turned back to kitchen paper. I hear the boy can barely even look at a roll of plenty now without wetting himself. <laughs> As for me and Trix, she cast a spell of slavery on Peter the party for a laugh, and it seemed to work. He hasn't stopped calling her since. And when the night was winding down and there was nothing left to drink, I shared my test tube of love potion number seven with the hot Severus snake I'd been chatting to all night. And, well, let's just say there was chemistry. By day, Victoria works for charity PR in London. By night, she dreams and writes of a Yorkshire homeland. She likes all things Victorian, gothic, ghostly, and a little bit macabre. And her greatest fear is still coming across the woman in black. She is slowly working on her first novel. Margaret has been an actress and voice actor for over 30 years. Formed in theatre, TV, film, radio, commercials, and as various voices in video games. TV credits include Coronation Street, The Bill, London's Burning, The Ward, and she's recently recorded Doctor Who and My Boy Jack audio drama, and for Halloween, an animation as vampire and narrator in a ghostly tale. Margaret! by Victoria Feynman. It's a cold one tonight. Funny, isn't it? The most sweltering of summers can lead to such chilly autumns. My Bill used to always say that if we'd a really hot June in Yorkshire, he'd make sure we were booked for in for a week in Mallorca or Lanzarote in October. Never took us off. Bridlington, more like, to a caravan upon Thornwick Bay. Once to the Grand on Scarborough Seafront. That was the month before all the guests ended up with dicky tummies and they had to shut the place down for a week. Harry Gratian, that nice man from BBC Look North, came and did a report outside the hotel. We watched it on telly. We had fish and chips that night from Drake's. That I weren't brilliant. <laughs> Aye, it's bloody cold. 
There won't be as many of the kiddies out tonight doing trick-or-treat as there were last year. If it were my kids, I'd only have them out for an hour or so. Take them down Bottomer Street up the ginn and back round Charles Lane, then home for tea. But these kids, now, they'll be out till all hours dressed up as Spidey-Man and one of those horrible yellow cartoon creatures. When I was us, you went as a witch, and the boys went as a ghost, and that were end of it. It's all become a bit much now, haven't it? Very American. Anyway, oh, that's a nice copper, thanks, nurse. I shan't expect to be seeing many of them tonight. They don't tend to come round here now I've moved to be closer to Bill. Back in our old house on Turpin Street, I'd come home from work. Did I tell you? I used to work at Boots. Back when it was a proper chemist mine, not full of tat. <laughs> I'd put a pumpkin in the window, so kiddies would know they could come knock. And Bill would turn up about half five with a Halloween box. That was a nice touch they did at Terry's Chocolate Factory and all. Give all the workers a box of chocolates to take back for the trick-or-treaters. Didn't do that at the round trains. Different class were Terry's. It was lovely to give the kids something different. I used to love watching their little faces as we opened the box up for, for them to make a choice. They all used to like the nugget one. Coconut not so popular. Jean from number 36. She kept the box her husband Tony brought back from Terry's all to herself. They never had much class to them Parkers. She's dead now anyway. <laughs> <laughs> the rot setting were me and her when they put my bill on soft centres. Uh, Tony wanted to be on soft centres, but he didn't make the cut. Not careful enough with his fingers. You have to be ever so precise to get it right on soft centres. Strawberry creams are always my choice. We were both skilled with our hands, me and Bill. About the only thing we had in common. But then they do say opposites attract. Now, you shouldn't have your favourites. And me and Bill never did of our own kids, of course. But with the kiddies on our street, we knew the ones we liked. Little Peter and Andrew Robinson. Now, they were good boys. Used to say please and thank you ever so nicely after they'd called trick or treat. Their dad, Alf, was the scoutmaster, which I suppose is why they were so polite. I used to always make sure they get a nice chocolate and one for their dad too. Well, I'll tell you for now, we had some absolute tinkers used to come knocking. Now, I don't mind a bit of mischief. You want a kid with a bit of character. But that Kathleen Clark, oh, she was just too much. You never knew a girl for picking flowers. 
every bloody morning with her watch out of the window and she'd plug me petunias on the way to school. I told her mother once to keep an eye on her. You know what she said? She was expressing her creativity. <laughs> well, it went for a joke. And I said as much to Bill. Or looking things she were. Not bonny at all. And you could tell she'd be one of them girls who never had lads mooning after her. When she knocked on our door that Halloween night, I admired the stick on wart on her nose. <laughs> of course, I knew it weren't stick on at all, but <laughs> she had made such a mess of my petunias. Still. Dreadful shame what happened to Kathleen. A mother never got over it, so they say. You could hear her wailing after the coffin from to the side of York. It was probably a ruptured tummy ulcer, they said. Shocking in a young girl. I did take flowers round to her mother's. Not petunias, of course, as I didn't have any left. <laughs> for some nice carnations. She moved not long after that. Poor thing. I had to sort a prescription for sleeping pills out myself at Boots. Dreadful thing to lose a child. Oh, yes, I will have another cup of tea. Two sugars. I'm afraid I've something of a sweet tooth in my old age. Never used to. Always used to pride myself on being very trim. Not like Margaret Blackburn from Charles Street. By she were a big'un. <laughs> Size 24 in Marks and Spencer's knickers. <laughs> and all because I used to see them flapping on a line in a front garden. Massive bun. And the bosoms to match. Apart from me for saying so. Now, I knew my Bill liked a bigger woman. But I don't mind telling you that I was very upset when I caught him tickling Margaret Blackburn at a quiz night at the Harleyman. <laughs> he had about six John Smith Smiths, which I suppose is some excuse, but she were wearing the most garish pink lipstick. And her poor young daughter stuck in the corner watching her mother make an absolute show of herself. I made sure to give her a lass. Marie, I think I'd called her. Oh, an effective name if ever I heard one. An extra chocolate to take home the next Halloween when she came trick-or-treating. Yeah, mammal love a centre. I said, handing over the most choice in the box. Make sure you give it to her with my compliments, won't you? I wouldn't let Bill go to Margaret's funeral. <laughs> well, 
He only got a fortnight's leave every year from the factory, and it wasn't like he was family. I sent some flowers to Margaret's husband. He was a lovely looking fellow and all. Apart from the ears. And to Marie. They never worked out exactly why she collapsed. But it's hardly surprising carrying all that round. Didn't raise too many eyebrows anyway at the time. No, still no kiddies here tonight. I shouldn't be surprised, really. Not an environment for kids, is it? A care home. Funny, you can see the chimneys of, cherry, of Terry's from the window. They shut it down, you know. They make the chocolate oranges in Poland these days. Disgraceful, if you don't mind my saying. Oh, you mustn't mind Bill. He always makes odd noises whenever someone mentions the factory. Just look at him, drooling like a great baby. And I'm sure that's a mushy pea smeared on his chops. Pity. He was always a handsome man, my Bill. Even when he got a bit wrinkly, he could still run rings around the other fellas at the factory. I did my best to look nice for him, you know. Especially after that awkward incident with Margaret Blackburn. But the old man always told me a leopard never changes its spots. She was right, God bless her. I smelled a rat when he refused again to take me on a proper holiday. But not even I could have suspected he was having it off with Jean for number 36. Yes! Oh, whose husbands couldn't even get on soft centres. <laughs> I suppose that's why she wanted my bill. Bit of class, my bill, I always used to say. The spider's rumping. It must have been the shock of me finding out that led to his stroke. <laughs> I couldn't have planned it more perfectly. <laughs> I sent Bill round with an extra box of chocolates for Jean come Halloween night, to be neighbourly and all. Next thing you know, her Tony's on the phone, all hysterics telling me to come round right away, and when I get there, Jean's in a bloody pair of suspenders from Anne Summers on Corny Street, lying on the settee, blood foaming from her mouth. Our Bill's in his wife runs in the corner, looking as if he'd been punched in his great big gut. So I had to give him something sweet for the shock, didn't I? The chocolates were closest to hand. I'll always remember just as his face went white. The first trick-a-teaters came ringing. Tony went to answer it. He thought it was the ambulance. It was Dotty from number 12's granddaughter, dressed as that horrid pig cartoon they have on telly all the time. 
could take me mug into the kitchen to wash up. No, don't worry. I can just sit here and chat to Bill. We could always chat away, us two. she goes. Oh, poor Bill. I hope you don't mind me saying, but it'll be a relief when you go. It's a burden on our family, you know, you being stuck in here with meals that look like mashed up Ruskin baby food and no one to clip your toenails. It would have been a blessing if you went when you had the stroke the first time I tried. <laughs> if only it hadn't been in Jean and Tony's house. If there's one thing I can't abide, it's gossip. Look at you. You know, I could have been something. When I worked at Boots, they taught us all sorts. How to dress a wound, how to fill a syringe, what medicines you shouldn't mix with others. And now, here I am, sat visiting a husband who can't lift a finger or help himself or anyone else. Oh, don't mind me, love. You know, I have no right to be mardy. I'll be off to get the house ready for tonight. I do hope there's at least one trick-or-treater. It'd be a right shame to miss out on that. And speaking of treats, look at this one I've got for you. I saved it up from my cup of tea earlier. Perhaps, once you've had your dinner, the nurse can give it to you. I'll leave it just here. A special one with my love. <laughs> oh, don't look at me like that, Bill. I'll ask the nurse to make sure you really enjoy it. A nice, soft centre, this one. You couldn't have filled it better yourself. You always did love a strawberry cream. <laughs> Thank you, Margaret. I do hope you're all enjoying your trick-or-treat chocolates. <laughs> <laughs> the third story, and the last before the interval, will be Hide, Go Seek by Dan Howarth, can be read by Math Jones. Dan is a writer and British Fantasy Society award-nominated editor of dark fiction from the north of England. Like all northerners, he enjoys pies, rain, and the tears of his enemies. <laughs> Math was born and lives in London, but he lived in Worcester for many years. A pagan... <coughs> In the Old English and Norse tradition, he writes poetry on the stories and the meters of that tradition. He also writes more usual verses, 
performing throughout the Midlands and London. A bookseller for many years, he retrained in 2008 as an actor and has acted professionally since, including in the West End as Matt Sands. Math! Hide Go Seek by Dan Howard. Amy liked to hide. Whenever she got the chance, she would jump out on Mummy and Daddy. Amy always liked to hide in the cupboard under the stairs when she got home from school. Mummy would go into the kitchen to make tea. Amy always hoped for chicken nuggets, but rarely got them. While Mummy made the tea, Amy would burrow into the cupboard under the stairs, beneath the coats and behind the shoes. She shoved the broom to one side and wriggled behind the ironing board with a soft metallic clang. The cupboard under the stairs was dark, but not totally black. Light got in under the door and around the sides. Amy hugged her knees to her chest. Daddy would be home soon, and she was going to get him. She listened as Mummy clattered in the kitchen, moving pots and pans, the steady chopping sound as she cut things up. Mummy hummed as she cooked. Amy sat in the darkness. A smell rose up around her. What was Mummy cooking today? It smelled gross. It reminded Amy of the time that Tommy from school left a sandwich in his bag for weeks till it went green and turned to liquid, all rotten and mouldy. But there was something else to this smell, something worse, a burnt smell, like the time Miss Jacobs lit candles for them in class and licked her fingers to pinch the match. The smell got stronger the longer she sat there. It stuck in her throat and made her cough. Her eyes began to water and she didn't know how much longer she could sit and hide. Then that she heard the rattle of keys in the door and footsteps down the hall. Hi, Mummy, said Daddy. Where's Amy today? You'll have to find her, Daddy. I haven't seen her. Amy stifled a giggle with her hands. This was the bit she loved the most, hiding and waiting to be caught. To jump out on Mummy or Daddy when they weren't expecting it, she shuffled from her hiding place and stood behind the door. She scowled making her scary face. She curled her fingers into claws and bent her knees, ready to pounce. She heard Daddy clumping through the living room and dining room, his work shoes clip-clopping like a horse. Amy wanted Daddy to hurry up and find her. The smell was getting too much. Finally, 
she saw Daddy's shadow block the door and the handle began to twitch. The door swung open and she launched herself at Daddy with a roar. He squealed. His voice, high and funny, he scooped her up as she jumped at him, swinging around as she grabbed his tie. How's my little girl? I'm good, Daddy. He kissed her forehead and set her down, taking off his coat and hanging it in the cupboard. Phooey, he said, his face scrunched up. What have you been doing in there, Ames? It, it stinks. It wasn't me, Daddy. I promise. Daddy put his face into the cupboard, taking long sniffs. I'll have to take a look at this over the weekend, Sarah, he called into the kitchen. What's wrong? Mummy asked, her voice accompanied by the sound of plates being stacked. I think we got damp. He shut the door and looked down at Amy. What's the tea, Mummy? Fish fingers. Daddy pulled a face, sticking his tongue out and crossing his eyes. Let's go and sit down then, kid. It's nearly time to eat. On Saturday morning, Mummy went out to do the shopping. Amy and Daddy decided to stay at home and read books together. Amy's class was reading Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, and she couldn't wait to find out what happened to Charlie Bucket. They read the book together, Amy reading the bits she could, and Daddy reading the other parts doing silly voices for Grandpa Joe and Willy Wonka. After an hour, they heard a car pull up outside. It's Mummy, said Amy. Let's hide. Daddy reached behind them on the sofa and pulled out the blanket they snuggled under in winter. Quick, let's hide under here, he said. He smiled at Amy and she smiled back. She loved playing games with Daddy. They threw the blanket over themselves and sat giggling beneath it, waiting for Mummy to come in. They looked at each other, trying to stop themselves from laughing, waiting for the sound of jangling keys and rustling bags. Instead, they heard the gentle patter of footsteps in the hallway. Amy looked at Daddy to see if he'd heard it too. His face was wrinkled as he listened, his head tilted to one side. The patter got louder, moved closer. The sound reminded Amy of when Nana brought her dog Archie round to visit. She hadn't got his claws cut for a long time and they clacked on the wood whenever he moved. This noise reminded her of Archie, but it sounded bigger heavier. As they sat and listened to the noise, Amy smelled that smell again. It wasn't as strong as it had been in the cupboard a few days before, but it was still there. Underneath the blanket, she saw Daddy sniffing too. His eyes were wide. He didn't look happy. Daddy, is that Mummy? No, baby, the, the door didn't go. I'm not sure what it is. The sound got closer, 
and louder. The smell got stronger. Amy didn't want to hide anymore. It was hot under the blanket, and she couldn't see anything. She wanted to get out and run. She looked at Daddy. He was fidgeting, his fingernails digging into his palms. His knuckles were white. The footsteps moved closer to the living room. Do you think we should jump out, Daddy? Amy asked. She was whispering now, but she didn't know why. Daddy shook his head. As he went to speak, they heard the door lock slide across and the front door swing open. It banged against the hallway wall and Daddy jumped. He grabbed Amy's hand and she jumped too. She smiled at Daddy and he smiled back, but his eyes stayed sad, different. Hello, can I have some help, please? Asked Mummy from the hallway. Amy and Daddy sat silently beneath the blanket for a moment, still listening for the scratching footsteps. The house was quiet again. Guys, please, I've got a lot of bags. Amy realised she was holding her breath and let out a long sigh. Daddy's face was pale, his forehead shiny with sweat. It made Amy scared. To see Daddy like this, normally he was funny and silly, unless she'd been naughty, but she tried hard to be good. He looked at her under the blanket. One, two, three. He yanked the blanket off. The living room was exactly as it had been before they'd started to read. Charlie and the chocolate factory lay on the rug, her bookmark poking out just as they'd left it. Amy went to get off the sofa, but Daddy put an arm across her. I'll go and help Mummy with the bags. Don't worry about it, kiddo. He got up and left the room. Finally, some help, said Mummy from the doorway. Amy heard the clomping of shoes and the rustle of plastic bags move down towards the kitchen. Is that smell back as well? We need to get the drains checked or something. It's disgusting. Amy climbed off the sofa and picked up a book. She clutched it to her chest as she walked into the hallway. Something on the floor caught her eye as she passed. She could only see it at a certain angle when it caught the light through the glass panels in the living room door. The hallway floor was covered in tiny scratches a random careless pattern that ended a couple of steps away from the living room door. Amy felt her stomach do a loop-the-loop and she suddenly wanted to be close to Mummy and Daddy. She ran past the door of the cupboard under the stairs and didn't look anywhere but straight ahead. On Sundays, they went to Nana's for a roast dinner. Amy loved it at Nanny's house. She always got extra roast potatoes and they had a proper pudding. Mummy never let them have anything but fruit. After their tea at home, Archie came rushing over to them when they arrived, his claws scraping on the tiles in the hallway. The noise reminded Amy of the day before. It made her shiver. Amy looked up at Daddy 
and he'd look like he'd been shivering too. But before she could say anything to him, he was helping her take her coat off and telling her to go and play. It was dark when they got home, and chilly, even for October. Amy was the first out of the car and hopped from foot to foot on the doorstep as she waited for Daddy to let her in. She had forgotten to take a book to Nana's house and couldn't wait to read a bit of it before bed. Amy barreled through the door as Daddy unlocked it. The hallway was lit by the living room light. Daddy always left it on and closed the curtains whenever they were out at night. Amy knew it was to keep burglars away. She ran into the living room and skidded to a stop by the door. Someone was hiding under the blanket on the sofa, sitting upright, facing the door. Amy watched the blanket twitch as the person beneath it breathed in and out. They made a snuffling noise like a pig. But as she looked at the person, she realised the shape under the blanket wasn't shaped like a person at all. Its head had two sharp points, one on either side. The blanket jutted out from its face, and Amy imagined a snout underneath it, a mouth long and full of teeth, like the crocodile at the zoo. Whatever was under the blanket looked tall, maybe even taller than Daddy. The living room smelled very strongly of damp and burning. Amy squealed and turned to call Mummy and Daddy. Amy heard Mummy whimper behind her and spun around to find them both already stood there. She crept past them, hugging Mummy's legs as she looked at the thing on the sofa. Get behind me, girls, and get out of the way, said Daddy. His voice was high and small and trembled as he spoke. I'll stay with you, said Mummy. No, go and call the police. As he spoke, the thing under the blanket lurched forward, jumping at Mummy and Daddy. Amy screamed and turned and ran. It was on top of Daddy. The blanket had fallen over his face, but Amy could hear him screaming. She'd never heard him scream before. It made tears come into her eyes, and then she heard the roaring. It was deep and powerful, and it made her legs shake. Mummy was screaming too, but Amy couldn't hear Daddy anymore. She ran up the stairs and dived under Mummy's and Daddy's bed. Her heart was beating too fast. Downstairs, Mummy's scream stopped suddenly, and the house went silent. Amy felt tears run down her cheeks and onto the carpet. Slow footsteps thudded on the stairs. She put her hands over her mouth to stop herself from screaming as the horrible smell filled her lungs. The footsteps 
clumped across the landing, muffled by the carpet. The only light came from the street lights outside. The whole room was drenched in yellow. Amy watched as two hairy feet appeared in the doorway. The toes were curled downwards, the nails black and unclipped. The feet and lower legs were covered in thin black hair. Dark liquid was splashed over the feet and up the ankles. Amy liked to hide. This time she didn't want to be caught. Thank you, Matt. And that brings us to the horrors of the interval. While you refresh your drinks and work out just how much peril your eternal soul is in, stop by and say a big friendly hello to Jackie Jenner, the daughter, daughter of Jamie Jenner, one of our previous writers. Jackie has come all the way from America to make this evening her homework. Deadlines, deadlines. The infamous Lies League book quiz. Caution! Some of these may be trick questions. So be careful before you answer. Let's begin. First question. Pipe in when you think you know the book. A real witch gets the same pleasure from squelching a child as you get from eating a plateful of strawberries and thick cream. Oh! (laughs) Beautiful. It is indeed! Which book are you claiming? Whoops, uh, I think the ghost compilation. Fantastic. It is yours. Second question. We all know that Frankenstein's monster is 200 years old, though he doesn't look a day over 120. But on the shores of which lake was the story born? Oh! Oh. (laughs) Yes, yes. It's correct. It was. <laughs> Death at Pemberley. Excellent choice. Coming your way. Third question. Which fantasy and comic book writer wrote the Graveyard Book? Oh, oh, oh. I, I thought there was one over there, but I. Uh, the writer of that. Yes, yeah. Neil Gaiman. It's correct oh, answer. Correct. Thank you. Child and other Fourth question. Who wrote Interview with the Vampire? Oh, yes, at the back. It was. Fantastic. Pick a book, any of the books. 
So which is our last book? It is the 11th plague, as good as Flashman. As good as Flashman, and it's last. And the final question, hopefully. The Haunting of Hill House is by which American novelist? Oh, is he howling? Did he howl? <laughs> the hand did go up. The hand, the hand did go all right, up. All right. It's correct it answer. Well done. Coming out, coming out this week, I believe, on Netflix. Uh, let's crack on with the second half. The first story of the second half will be Rounds by Anna Savory. We read by William Tuck. Anna was born in Medway and now lives in Brixton. She's a comedy writer and performer. She's inherited a cursed library from Dennis Wheatley, uh, but almost never mentions it. Uh, follow her on Twitter or go to see her show, Do Not Remove This Book, at the Old Red Lion. This month, on the 20th and 21st, there are flyers on the tables or go speak to her, she's in the audience. Uh, William is an actor, singer, and storyteller. He's appeared on stage and film in dramas, comedies, and musicals, and has even had a spell as a scare actor at Blackpool Dungeon. He enjoys bringing characters to life. His storytellers, storytelling skills have been displayed in festivals and fringe events, and he also lends his voice to audio and radio drama and has presented a daily radio magazine show for a community radio station. William! <laughs> Rounds by Anna Savory. 1am St Thomas's Hospital ICU. I've been in a tremendous amount of hospitals over the course of a distinguished career. And this is the first that I've been in that's smelled of Vicks. I don't think that's normal. Hospitals have a list of approved smells, and it runs in order. Bleach. Urine. The tinny reek of blood. Sweat. Feces. The earthy musk of fear. They're more unpleasant smell odours than Vicks, uh, objectively, but they're fitting. A place for every smell and every smell in its place. Vix is inappropriate, facetious even, because it creates the impression that here, in this intensive care unit, that all they have to treat the patients with are tubs and tubs of Vix. Get more Vix on him, they cry as the patient flatlines. <laughs> Quick nurse, this woman's body is rejecting her new heart. Get a line of vapour rub into her stat. <sighs> Mr. Ernest Lassiter, supine in his plastic fenced bed and stinking like everything else of camphor, is long past the smelling stage. His organs are failing and no one's worked out why. It's agonising. But the sooner they establish nothing can be done, the sooner he can be moved, pumped full of diamorphine, and guided out. I want to be there when that happens. It's got at least an hour, though, and there's no point in me hanging about. I'm clearing my airways. I've got rounds to make. 1.30am. Operating theatre, three. 
Surgeons don't like to appear to be concentrating. If you're worth your salt, though, reason, you'll be able to perform a deeply cutting, blithe monologue, even whilst you're blithely cutting deep into the abdomen of a 12-year-old girl. Amy was rushed down here an hour ago because part of her exploded. Funny things, spleens, says Mr. Steer, impudently probing Amy's with a gloved finger. But they don't rupture unprompted. That would be a design flaw. The nurses laugh dutifully. Amy's heart rate increases on the monitor as if she's realised to her horror that the man elbow deep in her viscera fancies himself as a comedian. <laughs> Something's happened to young Amy. Usually it's force. Punch to the gut. Alexandra Ward couldn't give me a hint, though. Can't keep their house in order. You've heard what's happened. No. Very embarrassing. Chap in ICU, organ failure, curved spine into a shapely C, bleeding internally. Prompted by his own performance, he presses on Amy's delicate organs, and they splutter red. I mean, what do these symptoms sound like to you? Ever read a textbook? Or an Agatha Christie? He locates her spleen in a sea of blood and slices. Not my job to tell them, but here's the sticky part. He flicks something sticky from his glove. Patient's been with us for weeks. Came in on the fifth for an op. So how could it happen? One of us, clearly. Or someone in our midst. Got to be ingested, you know. And visitors don't get near the food. He's so wrapped up in intrigue, he's not noticed the blood filling the glove on his left hand, which remains tucked inside Amy's torso as if she herself was a warmer, larger glove. She's going to die. I ought, as a medical professional, to direct Mr. Steer's attention to it. But then, I'm not a medical professional. Amy's eyes flick open. She sees me. And even though I'm dressed as a friendly doctor, she must recognise it because she panics. Before she can give the game away, though, a nurse clocks the blood and throws her weight behind a wad of surgical packing. Amy's eyes slam shut. Mr. Steers slops the spleen triumphantly into a dish and raises his needle like a lance. I can't stand him. I should press on. 1.55 a.m., room 12A. They've settled Ernest into a private, increasingly Vic-scented room and allowed family in. His elderly wife stares. His daughter, extravagant in grief, throws herself over the bed and beats her six-inch heels against the ground. Occasionally, for the look of it, she'll hiccup out his name or a snatch of that poem from Four Weddings and a Funeral. She's trying to make me feel guilty. And frankly, she's overdoing it. His wife turns, recognising me from when she was in here herself. It was a routine operation, she says. They came to see him the other day. No one could give her an explanation. What happened? Couldn't I chase it up? And so on, so on. That sort of thing really isn't my job, I explain. But of course they've all been saying that. 
Besides, Steer's correct. It's so obviously suspicious. And the fact that no one's cottoned done yet is embarrassing for them and for me. Call itself sabotage, but I glare at a nurse in the corner until she gets a syringe. They should have run bloods in ICU, but he went south so quickly and they're all stretched very thin, which uh, reminds me, I need it upstairs. 2.15 a.m. Alexandra Ward. Mrs. Una Jeffries is 82. She will remain 82. 83, she will not see. As the old medical rhyme goes, 82's a lot. I'll make sure of that. Her notes read, Mrs. Una Jeffries, 82. Stop me if I'm getting repetitive. Non-smoker, but a large cell carcinoma in her lungs, stage four. The nurse herself once. It says here, she came over on the Windrush. Seems like an irrelevance. With all the little old ladies, I do the same charming doctor routine. Good bedside manner. Reassuring smile. Slightly sexy, but not in a threatening way. <laughs> they expect it. How are you feeling, Una? She groans. You're looking lovely this morning, I add. She doesn't. That was me being charming. <laughs> She can't even open her eyes or shut her mouth. She's really not lovely by any stretch, and she started taking huge, sucking gasps, as if to drain the moisture from the air, which makes her even less lovely. And no, you won't believe me, but I desperately want to help her. So I do. It's a kindness, really. I am just straightening up from her lifeless body when she grabs, fastens an aged mitt around my collar and pulls. I snatch a few strong images. Ernest, the smell of almonds, the girl mixing it into a jar. Una's a nurse. She saw what was happening. It's been on her conscience. She wanted to tell them, but... But now she's told me, she snatches my hand, drags me to the door, and before I know it, we're through the wall, out of the ward, along the corridor, around a corner, around a second corner, rocky corner, past some wooden houses, and at the sea. The sand's impossible for me to walk on, and I'm far too hot in my seductive doctor jacket, but they rarely choose their destination with me in mind, and I have to accept that. Una's unclamped a chubby hand from mine and toddled off, which is a relief. The surf's full of children, splashing, tossing nets about. One of them smiles me from the bow of an upturned fishing boat. Perhaps not an irrelevance. <laughs> and I was doubly wrong. She didn't remain 82 at all. We live and learn. Well, we learn at any rate. 3.15 a.m., room 12a. Back with Ernest. And just in case I felt the trans-Caribbean jaws might have taken a toll on my respiratory health, I'm virtually choking on Vicks. 
The smell's overpowering. But now I focus, other smells are underneath too. Especially that earthy fear and a hint of old. <laughs> you don't think of cyanide as a topical poison, but I've read medical textbooks and Agatha Christie and, unlike Steer, I've seen into the dying thoughts of the only witness, so I know it can be. The question now is, who? I'd love to tell you it was Una. Or me. <laughs> what a twist. <laughs> but Ernest's final thoughts are the last name. I see his wedding day, his wife's funeral. I see his own daughter between his bed and Una's rubbing it into his chest. Something strong to mask that telltale smell. Something they wouldn't question. A doctor enters. Policeman in tow. Ernest is standing behind them, hand in hand with Mrs. Ernest, who thanks me for chasing everything up for her. Could you chase one last thing for us, dear? Well, it's not really my... No, no, this is your job. We've never really liked her. Certainly don't like her now, says Ernest, who had never paid for a Yorkshireman during any of this. <laughs> sure enough, the daughter's running. She's pushed past the policeman and into the hall. She's uninspired, this one. Read too much bad fiction. As is clear from her profoundly stupid method of killing, she's expecting, therefore, an uninspired look. In a way, it's comforting. Like slipping on an old jumper. An old, eight-foot-tall jumper made of bone and sacking and agricultural implements. I want you to know that, despite my verbose, discursive manner, I'm physically very fit and terrifyingly fast. She reaches the end of the first corridor, unaware of me, whips round. Behind her, there's nothing. Silence. But at any moment, the police. Reception is floors away. She dashes to the stairs, but... Halfway down, there I am. Tattered, rotting, pointing. It's a bit much, but it, I do it anyway. <laughs> it takes effort manifesting to the living, but it's worth it. She screams, heels skittering back the way she came. The smell of fear is stronger than ever. And sweat! That's more like it. I run, vault up the stairs, the cold ring of bone drowning out the frantic click of heels. The bones aren't clean. She swerves, avoids an orderly, trips, sprawls. I'm closer. I swish the blade in time with my stride. It's not clean either. Not a swishing aluminium beauty, scalpel sharp. It's a huge, clunking piece of steel for cleaving flesh. She actually freezes on the floor, hands out, shielding her face. I jab a Vic's rubbing finger as an ironic warning, and she shrieks and leaps back, smashing her head against the wall. <sighs> screaming and screaming, she lurches up and staggers forward. Really a lot of blood splattering behind her. That tinny smell, just as it should be. 
Not that I'm doing this to restore olfactory equilibrium. It's just a pleasing side effect. And look who's there. In that dead-end corridor, I force her down. Why? It's Ernest, gamely joining in. He himself has overdone the rotting. He shambles forwards, wretched, struggling to breathe. Sounds like he could use some fix, really. <laughs> I laugh, and the sound makes her completely lose control. Two more familiar hospital smells. And we're closing in. She spits out a sickened groan, screws up her eyes. She opens them. I'm gone. A last minute reprieve. She stumbles slowly. Vision swimming to the stairwell. She can make it out if she keeps going. But she's lost a lot of blood and her centre of balance is off. By six inches. He falls. The sickening sound of her head as it collides with the radiator at the bottom is like a grotesque root vegetable hurled on a spike. Jets of steam blown down onto what's left of her. She leaks sympathetically onto the tiles. She furnishes me with a final image of myself in full pursuit, which I'll save in a special place in my heart and look back on whenever I'm having a crisis of confidence. I stoop to guide her out, but as soon as she sees me, she runs again. No time to spare. She scrambles back up the staircase, screaming, dashing forwards, even as the nurses rush to her body. Eternity. Those heels? It hurts even to think about it. Maybe she'll realise in time that I'm not chasing her anymore. What's the old verse? The wicked flee where none something something. I don't know. I'm deaf. Not the Oxford Dictionary of Quotations. Besides, I can't stand around here congratulating myself. Work never stops in this place, and besides, I've rounds to make. Thank you, William. Our penultimate story is Another Mother by Michael Harris Cohen, read by Miranda Harrison. Michael's work is published or forthcoming in various magazines and anthologies, including Friction, The Dark, and Conjunctions. He's received a Fulbright grant for translation and fellowships from the I can't even try and pronounce that foundation. <laughs> the Jurassic. The Jurassic. Thank you very much to the audience. Uh, OMI and Gentle. He teaches in the Department of Literature and Theatre at the American University in Bulgaria. Miranda's credits include More Than This, uh, Dread and Roses, Women Redressed at the Arcola, The Mesmer at Dirty Dick Vaults, uh, classics include Nurse in Romeo and Juliet, 
mother in Blood Wedding, and voiceover work includes BBC Children in Need, charity and corporate narrations, educational audio. She also runs new writing event, Page to Stage. Miranda! Another Mother by Michael Harris Cohen. She wakes, gasping, spluttering sea and sand, thrashed by coughs till the salt water is out. Only air in her lungs at last. She breathes. Alive. Her eyes focus. A beach. No boats or houses. No people. An island. No lights but the moon and its shine on the sea. Endless sea. It's calm now. A sheet of black metal. Not like before. The memory of the storm cyclones her head, as if she still reels under house-sized waves and shrieking winds, the terror of the sea depths of her death. She wrenches her thoughts back. She's here. Alive. Unlike her boat, whose bones nod in the waves, she's unbroken. Skulls skitter the sand, silver in moonglow. Sky is clear. Waxing gibbous moon, a shotgun blast of stars. Beautiful. But weather turns fast in the islands, she knows. Swift as a storm that flipped and pulled her under. Though the sea spared her, it spat me out. She slaps her face hard. Focus! <clears throat> Sodden and dazed, teeth chattering, she hauls herself to her feet. Shelter. Then in the morning, water. The thought of water, how there may be none, singes her throat. She clamps back tears, trudges inland, her skulls scatter. The girls huddle by the stream. Their bodies twine for warmth, young muscles shuddering. It's an effort not to move, to stay hushed. But darkness and silence are allies. As always, the youngest cannot hold her tongue. It squirms in the cave of her mouth until she speaks. How long must we wait? Where's mother? An older sister pinches her arm. Shush! The older patients, the older girls, are more patient. They know she will come. Or someone. Someone always comes, if the sea wills it so. It's still dark when the woman jolts awake. She had a nightmare with Lucy, her daughter, lost in the storm. Lucy sank to the sea bottom. The woman watched, frozen, unable to save her. She shakes off the dream. Lucy is at home. Lucy is safe. She discovers two granola bars in her jacket pocket. 
She shreds a wrapper and devours one, savouring the chocolate's sweet drip in her throat. Three bites and it's gone. She tears the other wrapper, then stops. She must be smart, rational. She must find water. Her dizzy head pounds with thirst, her tongue like sand from the sweet oats. At dawn, she walks the island. Rock, heat, green lizards, the gulls, little else. Till close to midday, a miracle, a bourbon stream. The tight fist of her heart unclenches. Water, simple, sweet water. At midday, a woman stumbles to the stream and sprawls onto her belly. The girls watch as she drinks greedily. She drinks till her belly swells, forcing herself to stop so she doesn't vomit. She stretches on her back and laughs out loud. It's not food, but she's full. She knows she can last a long time with just water. A shuffling from the brush. Four girls pop up from the opposite bank. Silent as rocks. She sees their tattered clothes, their long hair unbrushed and knotted like gnarled branches. They're thin like branches too. The youngest looks the same age as her, Lucy. The girls offer tears and trembling lips. The oldest tells of a storm, a shipwreck. Her voice cracks over the death of her parents. She whispers how they've been alone for weeks, famished. The youngest appears from behind the others. She sobs and jerks at her filthy hair. She's the best at crying. All the sisters agree. Mommy! The youngest keens. Her wails tug the woman like a rope as she crosses the stream to the girls. <coughs> the woman offers soft words. She offers a granola bar with a gentle smile. They stare at her as though they don't understand, though their teeth grind like millstones. How long have they been here? How did they survive? In that moment, the woman decides she'll save them, all of them. She'll build a raft from the scattered pieces of her boat. They'll push past the breakers, find a shipping route. They need a mother to get home. She'll be it. Home to Lucy. She'll make it, just as she promised when leaving. She'd kissed Lucy's pouty lips and sealed her oath. The girls clasp the woman's hands and arms. They hang from her like heavy fruit. They tug her four ways, whispering in her ears, they speak as one and tow her to the ground. The woman does not fear four girls lost on an island. Not yet. Not till the knife, clenched by the oldest, slashes the tendons of her legs, hobbling her. Not till their grasping hands and knobbly knees pin her to the ground till she can hardly breathe to scream. The smallest goes first, 
because they were all the smallest ones. Her teeth rip into the woman's thigh, a favourite bit of meat. She pulls away, catching the blood on her chin, not wasting a drop. Then the others feed, a blur of teeth and nails. Gulls frenzy the sky. The woman fights till she cannot. She slips past pain and terror to shadows, to depths that make the ocean shallow. Her last thoughts only Lucy, the broken oath. But how she'll give everything to her, a mother's love that's boundless, bottomless. The girls nap, lazy in the sun's heat. Much later, the oldest knocks apart the skeleton with a rock, shooing the gulls. There's still marrow to suck, and bones make good swords for play battle. The rib cage, a house for stick dolls. Skulls kick well along the beach. <coughs> Bellies full, they play as children. They swing bones and chase, squealing in the chilly stream. The island is lonely, the youngest thinks, but she has her sisters and the toys they fashion. She chases a gull. She sings, her tongue at last free. Soon, she sings, if the sea wills it so, another mother may come. Before our final fright of the evening, some notices. The Liar's last theme of the year is a Christmassy, naughty and nice, with a deadline of the 4th of November. The event is on the 11th of December, and will be at the Albany, not here. So do check the details on the Liar's website, where you'll also find recordings of past themes going back many, many years. And so, our final story of the evening will be The Dungeon Master's Guide by Rhys Timpson, read by David Milton. Rhys lives in London and has previously had fiction published by 3AM, Litro, Popshot, A Million Ways, and several other places. David is an actor, playwright, and founding member of Liars League. His stories, Worms Feast and Red, were read here and appear in Arachne Press anthologies, London Lies and Weird Lies, both of which are for sale at the desk for fire. His plays, The Flood and Leaves, have been produced on the London stage, along with many shorter pieces. Acting work includes National's production of Consent at the Harold Pinto. David! Dungeon Master's Guide by Rhys Timpson. Welcome, heroes, to the Stygian plains of Morkalanatha. I am, as always, your Dungeon Master and guide through these ashen wastes. And what a terrible place to be on Halloween of all nights. Evil is at its zenith on this day and only the pure of heart 
will survive. What we call Halloween is known in this world as Gloomfeist in the common tongue. <laughs> and it is said that on this night every year, the souls of evildoers return to the scenes of their transgressions, and they are justly punished. No, Oliganth the mage, you may not nip to the loo. <laughs> there is no time for such fripperies. Adventure awaits. But seriously, Ollie, now isn't a great time for a toilet break. You'll find out why very soon. There's a good reason, trust me. I've always been trustworthy, haven't I? Scrupulously so. What a pity none of you can say that for yourselves. There's no need to look offended. You four were always cheats and liars. You made that obvious from the start. But I tried to be a good friend to all of you. All the same, I was Frodo to your collective golem. What I'm saying is, you are always destined to bite my finger off. Don't pretend like you don't know what I'm talking about. Lately, I've been thinking about you all, mostly at night, clenching and unclenching my fist. Do you remember how it all began? Your first quest in our first campaign, that Halloween, long ago, so long ago, us five gathered round this same table, not out grubbing for sweets like all the other kids, no. venturing into the very dungeons of our souls. Some of us went deeper than others. You were searching for the, uh, the hammer of anguish, the only weapon that could break the seal on the gates of Castle Wobertide. When Sylvester tried to claim his dwarven fighter, Silverstroth Goldhammer, had recovered all his hit points from one night of sleep. I mean, I've been clear from the beginning that we were using the AD&D 2nd edition rulebook and not the bastardised later editions. There was... No point telling me that I should have been lenient, as it was our first go at AD&D. The rules are very clear on the point concerned, and we've been obeying them for the entire campaign. This meant that when the Ulmba Hulk hit Silverstroth for 10 HP, it killed him, and that when the Resh's cleric revived him again, according to the second edition rules, he lost a point of constitution, taking his total to 17, and meaning he no longer automatically passed rolls for system shock. <laughs> That's how the game goes. The rules are there for a reason. What, you, you think you can suddenly switch which Dungeon Master's Guide you're using halfway through an encounter? <laughs> I saw, too, how when we were fighting the Land Shark on the Chalk Flats in that same campaign, Naresh actually rolled a 17 on the D20 that landed under the table, and not 18 as he claimed. And he let that one go because it was hard to prove. I, we're all aware that Naresh's level 7 cleric had a fact 0, 16, and therefore needed to roll an 18 to hit the monster. 17 would not have done, and would likely have resulted in his death. Instead, the land shark died. I let it go. <laughs> and, um, <clears throat> by the way, the, the creature's name is pronounced 
Boulette, not Boulet or Bulet. The campaign was set in the realm of Alamabatha, not France. <laughs> that you all had no moral compass was apparent during our last campaign in the icy wastes of Kalamata. <laughs> a scenario I spent many weeks preparing only for you all to bail halfway through. You cannot claim, Ollie, that your level 20 elf could be revived by a raised dead spell because he had a human grandmother, grandfather on his mother's side and was therefore one quarter human. You've never mentioned it before and besides, that section of the rules was not at all ambiguous. Elves cannot be brought back by a raised dead spell. Only a true resurrection spell would have done. Similarly, it's not enough to say that you thought I knew that you slept with Irene just before I got together with her. <laughs> or that everyone was doing it with everyone that year. I certainly wasn't. And does it gall me to know that I was not, in fact, her first time to green dragons shoot poison gas? In any way, it's been years now since I found out, and I'm, I'm fine with it. I'm so glad that you all agreed to come back to the old brewer basement for an anniversary campaign. I'll make it short, don't worry. The wastes of more Kalanatha are unforgiving, bathed in endless night and riven by the conflict of perpetually warring factions, with all the treachery and lies of George R. R. Martin at his finest. You'll fit right in. Uh, Naresh, you may be interested to know that the people of Morkalatha speak a different language known as Morkalatha. <laughs> there are very few common tongue speakers here, but I've no doubt that a knowledge of Morkalatha will miraculously and magically appear on your character sheet the same way a fluency in German appeared on your CV and landed you that semi-executive position straight after graduation. The irony is, of course, that I speak Deutsch like a Bavarian beer hall regular, but of course they would never have given me that job because of my strange commitment to honesty. <laughs> I had to settle for four years of data entry before landing my first big break as a copy editor. I hope you realise that your entire position is based on a lie, and that at any point in the last 14 years, I could have called your employers up and told them so. I let it go. <laughs> Just like I let that dice roll against the land shark go. I haven't reported you any more than I've held a grudge about Ollie fucking my wife. <laughs> and, uh, Sylvester... Does it gall me to see you making so much money out of an idea you stole from me? Of course, but am I suing you? No. The truth is, we both know you took the idea for your Dragon Mistress mobile game from the short story I showed you about my character, Marinia, the Princess of Dragons. Sure, you changed her hair colour, her skin tone and gave her pointy elf ears, but are you really telling me that you came up with that idea independently? Oh, please. It's not about the money. It's about the betrayal and violation of trust. 
It's no surprise, of course, considering how you read through my dungeon master notes for the forests of Silva by Le I figured it out pretty quickly, though, didn't I? You certainly weren't smart enough to pretend you didn't know that the Thelenathia were, in fact, dark elves in white face paint. So we ditched a campaign I had spent two months working on. And I wasted an afternoon applying black, then white body paint to every square inch of skin. <laughs> That's okay. I'm not bitter. I use the material for my novel. And Tom, I haven't mentioned you yet. Have I? Tom, the Paladin. That was the most unfucking imaginative name anyone has ever come up with in the history of D&D characters. You are in a fantasy world, Tom. You are playing a holy warrior with all kinds of cool powers who hails from a magical land and you call him Tom. <laughs> Jesus fucking Christ, you would deserve what you're getting just for that alone. But in case you think I'm being unfair, I, I heard you on the baby monitor when you went upstairs to change your son's nappy last year. So I'm the dodgy uncle, am I? I'm not a hard raven, Tom. I don't eat children. More Kalanath is a volcanic land. The plains are choked in sulfurous vapours. I decided to go for a little realism this time, something to enhance the atmosphere. Well, I can see that the fire in the bathroom's really working a treat. Huh. Don't you just feel that you're there? Uh, there's no point trying the basement door. I had it reinforced last week. <laughs> Windows 2 are now triple-paned PVC and too small for you all to slip out anyway. We're not 12 anymore. We're adults. Adults with big bones and... Beer bellies and too much, and these secrets and too much of a history. Yes, Ollie, I know you slept with Irene again last year. How could I not? She came home stinking of you, like she'd been in an encounter with a dire skunk and been sprayed by its anal scent gland. Anyway, see, the game <coughs> is still ongoing. You. Approach the citadel of Mograkatanazi, and the black gate swings open as you draw near, inviting you in. You know that the cup of truth is somewhere inside the ancient labyrinth. What do you do? There's no point shouting. You can turn back or go through the portal. Yes, yeah, there, there is a key to the basement door, but I swallowed it. <laughs> Bet you're wishing you had your vorpal blades now, huh? I know, you'd slice me open for it, empty my guts out, string me up on the rafters and leave me for the vultures. You are always such good friends. <laughs> Bet you wish you had a magnetic hand spell too, eh? What a pity such a spell doesn't exist in the AD&D 2nd edition. And you need to be a level 20 mage to craft your own spells. Besides, the key is brass. The spell wouldn't work on non-ferrous metal. <coughs> By all means, lie on the floor to breathe. Well, at least you learned something at school. Of course, you, you can try and make a call, but you know the reception in my parents' basement is legendarily awful. Besides, 
Help won't arrive in time. That's the beauty of this location. We're miles out of town. <coughs> but anyway, the gate is open. Do you step through? The, the campaign's short, I promise. Somebody, Ollie Ganth the mate, Silver Stroth, the fighter, Narobinar, the cleric, Tom, the fucking Paladin. <laughs> Great and legendary heroes, tell me what you want to do. And maybe you can escape the choking atmosphere of these deadly planes. The world is yours, adventurers. Bestow upon me your command, I beseech thee. What's that, Tom? You step through the gate? All of you, at the same time. Well, okay. You step into the dark, and the floor opens beneath you, sending you plummeting towards a pit of seething lava. Desperately, you spin around and flail your arms against the wall, scrabbling for a handhold. You must each roll two d20s. Should you roll a 20 on both dice, you have somehow managed to find purchase on the sheer obsidian walls of the pit. What are you waiting for? Roll! No? Okay, then I'll roll for you. Here we go. Silverstroth. An 8 and a 14. No good. You keep on falling, praying another of your party finds a hold and reaches an arm to you in time. Oligant. You roll a 20 and a 2. Good, but not enough. Your fingers graze a small cleft and not for the first time. Tom, Tom the fucking Paladin A one and a six You knock your head on the side of the pit Losing consciousness Naribinar, the party's last hope A twenty and a A nineteen So close Yes, it did look like a twenty But it kept rolling and settled on a nineteen No (laughs) I, I didn't nudge it what are you accusing me of? Cheating? Where would I have learned such terrible behaviour? <coughs> so, you are Gollum, and I am Frodo, and here we are in the infernal fires of Mount Doom, and I am bravely sacrificing myself to save the world from evil. Your evil, and before you ask, down here in the brewer basement, there are no fucking eagles! Yes, it's beginning to go black. That is as I intended. No, I won't take pity on you. I am the dungeon master, and I always play by the rules. again, assuming you come to the Christmas event. Stick around to chat and drink if you can, and if you can't, join us in December. Either way, please, raise the roof one last time for our tricksy authors and our sweet treat that is our actors. <laughs> <laughs>